welcome to Theologue. My name is Pastor Kevin Malloy. It is a pleasure to be with you. Brand new name, uh, same backdrop here in Central Texas. I'm sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, and it has been hot for about the last 45 days. We've had over 100 degrees, so you can kind of tell that the backdrop has changed over the last few weeks. Anyway, it's my pleasure to be with you here today. We're going to be diving into Romans chapter 11 today. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11. And as we're turning there, I want to just talk to you about Romans 11 very quickly. This is actually a passage that has sparked a lot of controversy within the church. And, I, and the reason it has, quite honestly, is because of how you approach the scriptures. Now, if you approach the scriptures ready to have it inform you, to teach you, uh, then you will, you will have a, a certain view about what it means uh, to be in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a child of Abraham, what Paul has talked about throughout this letter to the, to the church in Rome about who is a child of Abraham, saying earlier in this, in this letter that not all of Israel is Israel, but rather those who, who are called and set apart and are living by faith, just like Abraham, they are those that are part of part of Israel. So uh, with that in mind, if we let the text teach us, uh, then we will have very little problem with what Paul says here in chapter 11. However, if we approach the text with a view in mind about a distinction, divide between Israel and the church, Israel and a child of Abraham, if we want to separate those two into two distinct groups, meaning that God has two special people, that God has two ways of salvation, two ways to be known by him rather than one, as the scripture reveals. If we approach the scripture with this viewpoint of, yes, there's, there's this one camp and then there's this other camp, then we will misunderstand what Paul is talking about here in chapter 11. And you may be saying to yourself, well, Kevin, that just doesn't seem like that would happen. If we are studying the word, if we're being Berean and we're, we're checking all things against God's word, then that just won't happen. But unfortunately, that's what many, many churches across America and, and some around the world uh, do. When they approach uh, the scripture, they have a way of interpreting scripture uh, that divides people into Israel and those that are known in Christ, or they would refer to as the church. Um, so it's divided the church um, on, on how we interpret this passage. In fact, it's very controversial. If you're a dispensationalist, if you're reformed, you will have different ways of interpreting this. Of course, here on Theologue, as we are, we are trying to understand God's word from cover to cover, we let the text inform us on what we should believe. Uh, we are going to interpret this exactly the way that Paul has intended for us to interpret it. And so understanding that Paul has laid out throughout the book of Romans why there, are, there is such a problem in the world, why there is sin, and what is what happens when, when people rest in their sin and are not called and set apart and, and transformed by the Spirit of God. He takes great pains over the first three chapters to talk about how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just the Gentiles, but Jews as well, that all have sinned and are worthy of condemnation. 
And then he talks about the gospel. He talks about how we are we are set free from the penalty of sin and death, the condemnation that rests upon us, like Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 17, that we are condemned already because of the sin nature that we have in Adam. That if we have faith in Christ, our one and only atoning sacrifice, the only one who can provide a way for us to be redeemed to the Father. If we have faith in him, Paul says, in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, then we have life. And he goes on to say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. From being condemned to now no condemnation. Which is why when we get to chapter 8, we can rest in Christ, knowing that all things work together for good for those who who are loved by God and who are called according to his purpose. All these things are being worked together for our good, ultimately, and his glory. And that good is many, many, many times through trial and struggle as we learn to, to lay down our attraction to self, which is our nature in Adam, as he talks about in chapter 5, rather than, than that, to, to have our identity found in Christ alone, who is the second Adam and our only hope. Then through chapters 9 and 10, he talks about God's sovereign hand. He talks, <coughs> excuse me, he talks about how by God's sovereign hand, he chooses whom he will save. Many people look at that and say, well, gee, that is totally unfair. I mean, that's unfair. God would choose whom he would save. And yet Paul addresses this in chapter 9, saying, that you know the, the, the mystery is not why would God save some and not others. The mystery is why would he save anyone at all? Why would he save you or me? It's only by his grace, his gift, that we are saved. Not by any righteousness in ourselves, not by anything that we might do, but only by his grace alone that brings us to faith alone in Christ alone as we put all of our hope in him. He is where our hope lies. We get to chapter 10. He unpacks that a little bit more and talks about how uh, the word of God is has been close to us and close to the Jews. And he has not abandoned them. And when we get to Romans chapter 11, which is where we're at today. Uh, in fact, I'm going to back up just a couple verses into chapter 10 um, to, to kind of launch us into chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, look in Romans 10, starting... Uh, in in verse 16. But all did not obey the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Well, yes, they did. Their, and he quotes, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the inhabited world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. And so this, this picture of all are guilty, including Israel, that Paul has painted, leads up to this first verse in chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, let's look at that right now. He then says, I ask, 
then, has God rejected his people? Now, that's a very good question. Has God rejected the Jews? And this is the crux of the disagreement, theologically speaking and hermeneutically speaking, uh, within the church and within theological circles. Has God abandoned Israel? I guess it kind of depends on who you believe Israel is. Now, Paul, through the first 10 chapters, has pointed out over and over and over again what Jesus said in the book of John. Same thing, that all Israel is not Israel. Just because you are physically descended from Jacob does not mean that you are part of the nation of Israel. Even though your bloodline might be Jewish, that doesn't necessitate that you are counted among Abraham's children, Paul says. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do as Abraham did, meaning he would live, you would live by faith, resting in the Messiah. You would put all your hope in him and not your own righteousness, not your own attempts to be righteous, right? So has God abandoned Israel? Paul, like I said, has said over and over again in here that the child of Abraham, an Israelite, are those who trust by faith in his revealed word. Those who trust by faith in the Messiah that he has sent. Those who trust by faith in him alone for their hope and salvation and redemption and adoption that they trust in Christ alone. I ask then, has God rejected his people? His response is absolutely not. Some translations say, may it never be. Absolutely not. For Then he goes on to explain, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. From the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's a key verse. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And let's pause there. We'll get back to that, that quote from Elijah in a moment. Paul says, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And he says, I'm Jewish. He hasn't rejected the Jewish people. See, everything that Paul has talked about leading up to chapter 11 could, could cause you, if you were a Jewish Christian, to say, wait, has God abandoned his people, the Israelites? Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm obviously not abandoned. I'm called and set apart with purpose for the glory of Christ. So no, he hasn't abandoned his people. God has not rejected his people, he says, whom he foreknew. Do you see that? You might underline, uh, underline that in your Bible. Whom he, he foreknew. All those whom he foreknew, we just read about this in chapter 8. And if I turn back a couple pages, I can read this to you. He says this, verse 30, And those he predestined, and, and now he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles here, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Since he, he has done these things, he has foreknown them. Those he predestined, he also called. He, he foreknew them, right? And he predestined them, those that are set apart, for his glory. So here in chapter 11, he says, his people whom he foreknew, what he's talking about is those that he set apart from the beginning of time to be his people. And not only were those within the nation of Israel his people, 
I think about certain people that are listed in the genealogy of Christ, someone like Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, who helped help the spies to survive and was saved, was redeemed as in the bloodline of David and the bloodline of Christ. Right? I'm thinking about Ruth, the Moabite, who was not of the nation of Israel, but was redeemed by a kinsman, a redeemer, and again, in the bloodline of David, in the bloodline of Christ. Not all those that were just descended from Abraham were his people. And also, just think about this, in chapter 9, Paul talks about this, that he loved Jacob, but Esau he hated. Esau was also a descendant of Abraham, but he was not a child according to the promise. Same is true of Ishmael, who was a direct child of Abraham, but he was not the child of promise. So just because the bloodline was tied to Abraham did not mean you were part of the nation, Not did not mean that you were a spiritual child of Abraham. So when he says his people whom he foreknew, what he's talking about here is not just the physical line of Abraham. He's talking about his people that from the beginning of before creation in eternity past, he foreknew and set apart for his glory. He predestined to know him and to be called. It's an amazing passage. His people whom he foreknew, he has not rejected them, nor will he, nor could he? Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah that he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And they're trying to take my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. Pause right there. Now he's referring to First Kings here, where Elijah, you may recall, uh, was the prophet of God when King Ahab was in charge of Israel. So what was happening was uh, his wife Jezebel influenced him to tear down all the altars to the living God and instead erect uh, poles that were worshiping poles for Baal. So uh, this false god, and they had all of these priests of Baal who who would take you know, sacrifice babies and cut themselves as means of worship and have sexual um, you know, things taking place in their temples to worship Baal. And yet here was Elijah set apart as the prophet of God to speak the truth to Ahab. He said, it's not going to rain until I say so. And really what he was saying until God says it's going to rain. And all of these things take place. And you may recall that there was a confrontation with Elijah with these prophets of Baal up on the mountain where he said, call down fire, have your God burn up this, this, uh, this sacrifice of this bull with fire. And they cried out and they cried out and they cried out and couldn't happen. And so then he prayed and said, God, would you, would you reveal yourself? And he sent down fire and just evaporated not only the the sacrificial bull that was there, but all the water that was around it was poured on it and all of that. After this takes place, what happens with Elijah is he has this moment where he's like, you know, there is no one that's worshiping you, Lord. I feel like I'm so alone here. I feel like of all the nation that has gone astray, all my people who have followed after Baal, I alone am left 
And what does he say? Look, look a little further in the scripture. Verse 4. But what did God reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. This was a remnant. A remnant of 7,000 men. Some might have been within the king's household. Some might have been just in the cities in other places. It didn't it didn't matter where God had placed them. He had set them apart for his glory. They were not all apostate. And then Paul makes this connection. He says, in the same way. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now he's talking about the Jewish people. In this time, there's a remnant that is set apart by grace, not by their acts of righteousness, not by their choices that they're making to live holy lives. Rather, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is a remnant set apart, chosen by grace. He goes on to say, now by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So it's not by bloodline, not by what you do, not by who whose family you're a part of, but by grace alone, a gift from God. He goes on to say, what then? What then? So, so what's the conclusion? What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for. Well, what were they looking for? See, the, the, the conflict he has talked about over the last couple of chapters is this, that Israel has been striving for a righteousness even of themselves, trying to work hard to be better, trying to do whatever it takes to become holy and reaching up to God. But it is impossible for them to get there because of their sin nature, and they are altogether uh, condemned. So it doesn't matter how much good works they do or acts of righteousness they do, they cannot reach into heaven. Paul talks about that in chapter 10. However, it, if by grace then it's not by works. If it's not by works, he says, Israel did not find what it was looking for. It could not reach up to God, but the elect did find it. Those that were set apart by God, chosen by him, drawn by him, like it says in John chapter 6, that the Father draws us to Christ, opens our eyes, it says in Ephesians, right, to the truth, so that we are able to recognize our sinfulness, to repent and trust in Christ by faith alone, running to him and throwing ourselves at the foot of the cross, trusting in him alone. You may say, well, Kevin, how does that happen? I mean, how does someone get saved? By faith. As they feel the drawing in their spirit and they're convicted of sin, the spirit is working ahead of this moment of their salvation. And at this moment, by grace alone, they trust in Christ by faith. They place their hope not in themselves, in their own efforts, in their attempts to be good, but rather in Christ's finished work on the cross. All their hope, all their trust in Christ as the atoning substitutionary sacrifice for their sin that they might have life. Amen. I mean, that is what takes place as God draws us. The elect does find it. The rest were hardened, it says, as it is written. God gave them, gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. He quotes David next. He says, and David says, and let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall, pitfall, and 
and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. What he's talking about is this. To answer the question, what has happened with Israel? Why didn't they run to the Messiah? Paul is saying God's not done with Israel. He has set apart a remnant, just like in the time of Baal and I and Elijah and the confrontations that were taking place there. The nation had gone one way, but those who were set apart and chosen were, were devoted to God and his plan of salvation. The same thing is happening here, he says, and the rest they cannot understand because their eyes are darkened to the truth. That's what he's saying. We're almost out of time, but very quickly, let's look at the next couple of verses before we close today. But look what it says. I ask then, have they stumbled in order to fall? Have they stumbled in, in order to fall? In other words, um, have they tripped and this is the end? Like, it's over. There's no chance. Like, don't reach out to... It, it, what, what Paul is asking rhetorically is, should we even preach to the Jews at all? Have they stumbled in order to fall like it's finished? Look at his answer. Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumbling brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? And what he's saying is this. Because they stumble and they cast out, and the, the casting out of the Christians from, from Jerusalem and the persecution that took place there, we read about in the book of Acts, sent the gospel out to the Gentiles who were receiving it with gladness. And what he's talking about here is that their stumbling, their anger against God, their eyes being darkened to the truth, actually had a purpose. And that was so that the Gentiles might see and hear and believe in Christ. And then he goes on to say, if that brings their stumbling brings riches for the world and their failure for the Gentiles, if it's this good in their failure, what he says is, how much more will their full number bring? If they all were to believe in Christ, how much greater, how much more glorious would that be? That's what he's talking about here. Listen to how he finishes here. He says, now I'm speaking to the Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, he says, I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. If some of my people, he says, see what happens among the Gentiles and trust in Christ, if just some of them do, then he says, my joy will be complete. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now the first fruits offered up are holy, so the whole batch, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now we're going to get more into that root and branches analogy next time as we talk about what it means to be grafted in to the promises of God as a Gentile myself. What does it mean to be grafted in to the root of Jesse? What does that look like in our life? And he talks to the Gentiles here about it's not us and them. It's not like us against them. It's we in our call to reach all people with the good news of Christ. 
I should pause right here to say that there are many people that describe this view of God's sovereign calling that Paul lays out in this text. They call it something that they mean to be derogatory. They, they call it replacement theology, as if the Jews have been replaced by the Christian church, as if there's, there's, a, there's a break here and we just want to replace it and get rid of the Jews altogether. But that's absolutely the opposite of what Paul says here, isn't it? He doesn't say that the church replaces Israel, but rather that the purpose that has come out of their rejection, though there's a remnant that remains, the purpose has meant a scattering of those that believe in Christ that now have reached the Gentile nations. And how much greater it would be if the Jews would believe as well. Paul doesn't teach that there's a replacement of the nation of Israel but what he does teach is to be a child of Abraham it means to be a child of faith, one who is trusting in Christ alone. That alone makes you a child of Abraham. He's not saying that the nation of Israel, that the, the descendants of Abraham, are totally ignored and wiped out, that God is done with them. Absolutely not. Rather, that they too need the gospel. They too need Christ. There is no replacement. There's only addition. So if we know that to be a child of Abraham means to be trusting in the promises of God, that we are grafted into these promises, there is only a matter of addition to all those that are gathered in. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of this flock, and I must gather them too. And that as we are gathered together to the ends of the earth, we will then be able to sing, like we see in the book of Revelation, people from every tribe and nation and tongue gathered before the throne of God, singing praises to him alone. Holy, holy, holy is the one who reigns. And we see that as taking place right here, as Paul describes in the book of Romans, what it means to be added in to the promises of God. Abraham, who was himself a pagan, was set apart to be a nation, not because of anything good in him, but only because of God's grace. And those people that he set apart were given the prophets and the word of God to, to care for it and, and to teach it and to proclaim it until Christ came. Through this people would the Christ come and then to the ends of the earth as those that are Spiritual children of Abraham are grafted into all of those promises of God. There is no replacement, only addition. And that's the beauty of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well, until next time, guys, it's been a pleasure to be with you here on Theologue. May God richly bless you until we meet again. Bye-bye.